This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. This is the first of two episodes of the show on one of our favorite topics, the Wendigo. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, a Wendigo is a supernatural being belonging to the spiritual traditions of the Algonquin-speaking First Nations in North America. Wendigos are described as powerful monsters that have a desire to kill and eat their victims. In most legends, humans transform into Wendigos because of their greed or weakness. Various indigenous traditions consider Wendigos dangerous because of their thirst for blood and their ability to infect otherwise healthy people or communicate with evil. Wendigo legends are essentially cautionary tales about isolation and selfishness and the importance of community. Later on in the show, we'll chat with author Chad Lewis who's gone deep into researching Wendigo and its lore. But first, here's Morgan to tell us more about Wendigo. I have told many cases in my lectures and workshops over the years, but the one that brought me together with one of the most dear people in my life began its unfolding over a hundred years ago. It began to the West, in a village in Alberta, Canada, the like of which you will not find in the world today. There was the peaceful community of the Plains Cree people, Egg Lake, prosperous and enduring. The Cree lasted out the seasons with bountiful hunting and trade with the Europeans, who had come to Alberta. The wealth of this community lay in family and in the land. Herds of bison roamed the plains, providing furs and food to all who respected the balance of life. Beautiful trees and acres of prairie were home to many, including Swift Runner, a native giant who was known for his gentle kindness and dedication to his people. Winters were long here and could wear on even the strongest of souls, but the years of peace and plenty were not to last. A darkness was creeping over the plains. A sickness had taken hold of Swift Runner, and where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. Trade with the Europeans began to be treacherous, and as they ran down and killed the bison in attempts to starve the Cree out of their own land, war was breaking out, and death with wanton. Outcast to the woods for reasons not understood today, Swift Runner and his family of nine were left alone to fend for themselves. The long nights grew sour. The food grew scarce. The cold was cutting, freezing skin and tiny limbs with no discretion. No one knows who saw the Wendigo first, or when it manifested in the camp. But the next anyone heard of Swift Runner 
was at a small mission in St. Albert, Alberta. When the fathers opened the door, they found the six-foot-six giant begging for compassion and shelter. His family was nowhere to be seen, and he told a gruesome tale of starvation and inevitable death. As the lone survivor, he had followed the Sturgeon River as far as he could, setting up camp, and then finally making his way to their wooden doorstep. The kind community took him in, but noticed that despite his story, he was quite fat and appeared in good health. He spent night after night screaming that the Wendigo was attacking him in the darkness, frightening the missionaries and anyone who would hear his screams. All the while, he was certain that a monster was going to kill him. A monster said to spawn from the energies of starvation and desperate cruelty. The Northwest Mounted Police were notified when Swiftrunner requested to take a group of schoolchildren on a hunting expedition into the wilderness. The father could no longer ignore his own suspicions about the mission's visitor. Soon, the Northwest Mounted Police began to suspect something else. A terrifying idea, but they had to be sure. Taking him out to the dark of the woodlands, they brought Swiftrunner into the Sturgeon River County, and for the first time, the friendly nature of the giant man became cold and distant. They continued searching, feigning concern for his well-being and wanting to understand Swiftrunner's journey. When they reached a small wooded isle in the middle of a large muskeg, Swiftrunner let out a bone-chilling, wolf-like howl. A campsite lay before them, covered in ash from long nights of fires. Bones lay strew under their feet, and the police soon realized they were standing on a graveyard. Upon closer examination, it became clear, amidst the greasy, hand-smeared tree stumps, that the bodies had been cut up, gnawed upon, and that a small child's moccasin was stuffed into one of the eye sockets of the skulls. At the lake shore, a cooking pot was discovered, thick with human fat. Swift Runner soon confessed that he had killed and eaten his brother and mother, shot his wife as she slept, and then fed her to their children, who he then brutally murdered and, to quote him, made beef out of. Drunk on a tea and plug tobacco concoction that the Northwest Mounted Police had been giving to him in attempts to elicit the location and confession, Swift Runner told of how the entity called Wendigo was simply too difficult to withstand, and the horrified police sent him back to Fort Saskatchewan to be hung. It took the jury 20 minutes to deliberate. His fate had been sealed. As he stepped onto the gallows, Swift Runner complained that the hangman had left him standing in the cold for too long. December 20th, 1879, marked the first legal execution in Alberta. Many theories have been presented to clarify this phenomenon, which has held a taboo place in native folklore for centuries. Psychologists, physicians, and paranormal experts have struggled to explain the many symptoms of this horrific attack, and yet no resolution has ever been settled upon. Nathan Carlson, a Native historian, investigated and then structured a published paper around this very problem, titled Reviving Whitico, an Ethno-History of Cannibal Monsters in the Athabasca District of Northern Alberta. It is described, An ethno-historical examination of the Algonquin Whitico phenomenon, utilizing both previously unexamined documentary sources and oral traditions of Athabasca Cree and Métis elders, reveals that a Whitico, the Wendigo, condition is historically verifiable that the celebrated cannibalistic Wendigo psychosis of the Algonquinists eludes proper definition as a bona fide culture-bound pathology 
And finally, that has no single hypothesis, as of yet, consistently accounting for this phenomenon within an internally coherent, non-Indigenous theory. For researchers, it has been put aside as an unexplainable illness and a word rarely spoken. For the Native Americans in Canada and the northern United States, the Wendigo, Windigo, Atchin, or Whitico, its causes are clear. They call it an entity, a spiritual monster that appears in times of grief, famine, or hardship to possess its victims and cause them to cannibalize family and occasionally other targets. The name Wendigo is a Cree word, meaning evil that devours, and the title is fitting. The fear of the Wendigo can be so great it has been reported that people have locked themselves in their cabins upon them being sighted in remote areas and starving to death for fear of leaving the house and having an encounter. One such instance of a Wendigo possession appeared in the Edmonton Bulletin over a century ago and was noted by Carlson in his essay. The account describes in detail the very terrifying psychological events on the community, as well as the physical symptoms experienced by the host. His Indian name was Napanin. About the end of January 1896, he started, apparently in good health, with his wife and children on a visit to his father, who lived at Trout Lake. His wife reports that on the second night out, he acted strangely, saying that some strange animals were trying to attack him. They reached his father's place at Trout Lake safely, and he was there for 20 days, his fits of insanity becoming more frequent, more violent. His body is said to have swelled considerably and his lips were very much puffed out. On the day of his death, he was tied, hands and feet, face down in one of the houses. The men are reported to have said that they tied him before he entered one of his frantic fits for their own protection. At this time, during his frenzy, he had nearly broken loose and they feared that he would get loose altogether and kill them. They struck him four blows with an axe about the head. The reason that an axe was used was that there is a belief among the Indians that a bullet will not pierce the Wendigo or the man-eater. The body was burned, and large trees felled over the grave to prevent the possibility of a reappearance of the Wendigo. Some days after the death of the man, the people of the settlement were terror-stricken, believing that he might reappear and destroy them. Descriptions of these strange animals or spirit creatures have varied with a few similarities including towering heights from seven feet to the height of treetops, thin and lanky arms and fingers, bipedal stance, patchy fur that seems to be eaten away. In some tales, the patchy look is a result of the Wendigo eating itself, eating its own flesh. The more it eats, the hungrier it gets. Images of its face have varied. While many modern paintings depict the monster with antlers and a deer-type head, first-hand descriptions consist generally of terrifying features with little or specific detail, like a dog or a wolf head that the witnesses remember accurately and clearly to the face of what looks like a gray alien. The first description of the dog-like monster was in 1636. A father in Quebec, Canada, sent a dispatch to his fellow clergyman in Rome when a native woman told him that an Achen was coming to attack the village. As she tried to describe it to him, he related to his colleagues that it sounded like a sort of werewolf. Although eyewitness accounts and legends have slightly differed and had different descriptors, the overall encounters nonetheless follow the same terrifying pattern. Like so many other encounters, the Quebec missionaries soon became fearful as they began to hear the woman screaming from her room at night, claiming she was being attacked in her bed. 
Yikes, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. To help us understand Wendigo a little bit more, here's the first half of the chat that we had with Wendigo expert Chad Lewis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we have the privilege today of welcoming to Supernatural Circumstances one of my favorite authors and adventurers, Mr. Chad Lewis, who wrote an incredible book and definitely one of my favorites that he's written along with Kevin Lee Nelson called Wendigo Lore, Monsters, Myths, and Madness. And Chad, I knew you were the, I mean, you're the perfect person to have on for this subject and <laughs> this this entire episode. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Greetings from the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you're the Northwood. You're Northwoods of Wisconsin and I'm like, I don't know what Edmonton is. What does Edmonton qualify as? We're not Northwoods, really. It's North. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, if we were continuing the United States farther north, you'd be the very, very Northwoods. Right. Great. <laughs> Thanks. I, I feel encouraged. I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> um yeah, so so welcome. And I'm I'm so glad that we can really tap into this subject matter with you because this by far is one of the well it, I, to me it is the the Wendigo Bible of of information. Um uh, when Matt and I were doing research, uh, a colleague of mine when we were doing research into this phenomenon, we had a really hard time digging up a lot of this information. So um, you've got a master's in psychology, you know, you've been doing this a really long time. When you were in school, had you heard anything like this before? Like was, was this ever touched on as a mental illness or anything like that? Very briefly, usually it came about in undergrad in abnormal psychology classes, which you could take as a specialty, which were very fun. And I think the most interesting for me, but uh, nothing in depth where you'd walk away saying, I would like to know more about that. Yeah, it's just, it seems like such a, well, it seems like a topic that just hasn't been around very long. And yet, you know, it's been in history for so many years. You and Kevin really early on made a decision about how to approach this topic for your book. And what I really liked was it wasn't about proving things one way or the other. Why did you decide on the approach? What was it? And how did you execute on it? Obviously, Kevin and I love the supernatural. We love folklore, the paranormal. And I think long ago, we both have shifted from looking to prove or disprove things to looking at it from the standpoint of the legend itself, the adventure of it, how these legends morph how they progress, how folklore is a living, breathing thing. You know, they're not stagnant legends. They're always changing. So there was so much Wendigo stuff done in the academic field that was looking at it uh, as a mental illness or looking at it as a metaphor or uh, of a woman's place in the community or greed or the government's intrusion on indigenous people. 
And we didn't want to touch on that because it had been done so much. We thought, why don't we go into this taking the stories for face value, looking at the monster and the paranormal and the supernatural aspects that really exist. Let's take it as though this thing is real because for all intents and purposes, uh, it was for the people of that era. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why I I love this book so much because the people that you've interviewed over the years and that I've interviewed over the years and the the people who have come forward believe a hundred percent that this is a either a flesh and blood creature or at least a creature that has some spiritual prowess within the environment. And one of the things that I loved in the book really early on that I have never heard before was you brought up the life cycle of a Wendigo. And it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone tie these different descriptions because there's so many cultural descriptions and variances and and stories about the Wendigo. And this life cycle idea was the first I'd ever heard it all tied into something cohesive in almost like a biological way. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the three stages of development and how you got to that theory? Kevin really focused quite a bit on this in the book, and he always equates it to a when people ask, what is the Wendigo? Is it a spirit? Is it a being, flesh and blood? Is it something else? And he kind of answers it always with, yes, all of it. And he makes the equation of the analogy of a um, caterpillar going through its cycle into a butterfly. It's the same creature but it's just in different stages. So the first would be that spirit, the ability of it to be conjured by a a shaman, uh, either in terms of good or evil, or that it could come in spirit form and possess you. Then there's that stage two where we talked about Wendigo possession, where people think that they're turning Wendigo or going Wendigo and that their body's slowly transforming into this hideous monster. And then, of course, you have the third stage, which a lot of the stories focus on, and that's the full-on flesh and blood, no longer human monster that seems to terrify people the most. Yeah, and you even addressed, uh, like both you and Kevin, all even address the size issue as well, that the size might be uh, a different spot in the life cycle, like a larger Wendigo, these 10 foot tall monsters might actually be an older version. Some of the earliest literature not only tells that the more a Wendigo eats, the hungrier it becomes, but also the larger or bigger it becomes that you can almost judge the age of a Wendigo by how gigantic it appears in proportions. And that's why you have some that look like they're almost a human walking about or a stranger approaching camp that has a normal human physical dimensions to it, but yet they think it's a Wendigo. And then you have ones that were said to be larger than the treetops or as big as they wanted to get. So it's possible perhaps there are different stages within the stages. It's just, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, that, you know, we see throughout that lore that there's, you know, these different versions, you know, that I think people equated to the idea of, 
of just simply different stories and, you know, different versions because people were just making it up. And, you know, every time I've spoken to somebody who who has seen it or believes it or, you know, it's a part of, of their experience for whatever reason, you know, these people aren't saying this is a belief that I don't, you know, that that is attached to a, a religion or something like that. But, you know, the people that have seen it are often people who will tell you that this is this is a flesh and blood uh, blood creature or, or a, a manifestation of something which brings me to the question you know with, with hauntings and for myself what i've always noticed at least in the parapsychology area is that these manifestations seem to be almost like thought forms that have been put into a space like they've had enough focus put into them that they become real and they tend to be a reflection of the emotional state of the the people the culture uh the 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 experience of the environment itself and you know we've heard a lot about the idea that this is something that you know might have come from famine or or something like that do you think there might be some validity to that I think you make a great point that the Wendigo seemed, whether it came in flesh and blood or in its spirit possession type form, that it would come during mostly the winter when game was scarce and food was nowhere to be found. Famine was everywhere. But it also meant that a lot of people were at their lowest and weakest point physically, spiritually, and mentally. And that's what it would attack, much like here in the Western world when we think of demonic possession, that it takes place when somebody's weak um, physically, mentally, or spiritually as well. So there are those parallels there that it seems to take advantage of your weakness as any other prey uh, or predator would do. Yeah, and what I've noticed, and as uh, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, because like, what I've noticed with anything that is sort of haunting spirit related is that you know we are so intrinsically connected to to entities, to to the non physical, to consciousness, to all of that, and this to me is such a great example of of this because, like you were just saying. This idea that, you know, this is coming in times of famine, isolation, uh, you know, trauma for that matter, just trauma. Uh, cause, you know, we see, we, we see these cases involved in, in various, uh, uh, cultures over the years that have been through extreme trauma. And yeah, I, I just can't help but wonder if there's, if, if there is sort of an intrinsic connection. We, we kind of think of the Wendigo like it's coming in at us, but there's a part of me that wonders if, you know, we are indeed a, attracting that energy with, with what we're putting out there. I love that. I love the idea that perhaps there's something that maybe the Wendigo can smell or sense that we're putting off that attracts it to us. I love that idea. Yeah. It's something that's always kind of rolled around in my head when I've, when I've been dealing with this stuff, because in, in the haunting world, that's what I see frequently is that, you know, a family will be in, in disarray or upset or anything like that. And then that entity or the paranormal activity, I should say that they're getting back and that is reflected to them in the environment really is a reflection of, of where they are. And, and so that's always kind of something that's bounced around in my head, but we see a crossover too into other cultures like 
the 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 bayou with the Rougarou and the Navajo skinwalkers and things like that, um, with that similar ability to shapeshift or transform into in in different ways. Do you guys notice that as well? I know you had a, a segment about it in your book. Could you talk about that a little bit? We did. We put in not only other creatures around the world that were similar that were prevalent in other cultures, but also within the culture of the people of the main Wendigo. And what I mean by that is that without a doubt, the Wendigo will always be a First Nation spirit, creature, whatever it it will be. Um, But during those times, there was influence by the missionaries, the French fur traders, the voyagers, all of those people brought their beliefs their monsters, their superstitions to the area as well. So you see a lot of mingling of these ideas, maybe even conflating with other legends where we have a newspaper account going back to the 1850s talking about the only way you can truly kill a Wendigo is with a silver bullet. Obviously, borrowing from werewolf and lore from Europe of the time, how that became prevalent here in North America, obviously that was brought with other people. So even though there are other legends around the world and the country that are very similar, there were also mingling of ideas in the the origin of it, or at least uh, fairly recently after the origin, because apparently the Wendigo legend goes back so far that the people don't even know the origin of it. They can't remember the beginning of it. That's how old of a legend this may actually be. It's kind of breathtaking when you think about it. You know, like that we don't really have that much in our world that we can date back that far. We don't. And we don't have as much in the field of paranormal where we can blame so many deaths on this thing. Like you, yes, you hear of weird animals uh, in the old days attacking livestock and even devouring ranchers or farmers back in the you know 1600s in Europe, 1700s of possible werewolves and the like. But with the Wendigo, we have hundreds of documented cases of people killing one another because they believed that person was turning into a Wendigo and that they could not let them survive or everybody within the tribe, the village, the community would all be dead. Yeah. And that's something I was telling Mike about, you know, as, as he, he's been amalgamated into this Wendigo world. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's one thing that we were talking about was the fact that there are just so many, uh, so many actual physical crimes in relation to this. And those are the known crimes. Imagine, I don't think many of us today no matter where you're living, can appreciate the winters of the 17, 1800s in far northern Canada. (laughs) It's just brutal. No escape. You don't have a, you know, Tim Hortons on every corner to go (laughs) and get your refreshments from. I mean, times were tough. And that, that feeling that today we would consider it, you know, the seasonal affective disorder Back then, that was just daily life, and they didn't have anywhere near the modern conveniences we have today. I don't think time was ever harder as it was in the Northwoods during that period of uh, winter, where you're looking at maybe eight months out of the year. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I was just, I was just going to say when you started describing it at first, I was like, are you sure you're not talking about, you know, next month? Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Our winters here lately, I tell you, they have, they have been so bad. And we've, or we've, we, we have like these few months at the beginning, which are really warm and really nice. And then we had about January, February, and just everything goes to hell. So, you know, and we're right back. But like you say, you know, that we've, we've got these modern conveniences that make it doable. And, you know, I can't imagine being out there consistently at those temperatures, because I mean, I know what it is to wait for a bus, <laughs> you know, at <laughs> minus 35. And it's, it, it is another world, you know, people don't understand it. And but you guys, you and Kevin camped in it. <laughs> so talk about your camping experience. I think it was one way to experience in a sliver of how life would have been. And in Minnesota, there's an, uh, an island that is thought to be haunted, of course. And in the island is a lake, uh, Lake Windigo. And it's a, a lake on an island in a lake, which makes it an anomaly in its own right. But during the summer, there's a several grandfathered in cabins there. But in the winter, it's desolate, completely devoid of people. And that's when we decided to go there. And luckily or unluckily, the time we picked for the expedition was brutally cold. It was about 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and with the wind chill. And it really gave us a, a, an idea of what life would have been like back then. Because as you mentioned, life is rough in the winter in the north, but not really. You know, I turn up the thermostat a little bit. I maybe curse that I have to drive two miles to a bookstore to get something to keep me occupied. You know, <laughs> yeah. we have Netflix, we have lights, we have indoor plumbing. So and even though it was only a several day expedition, it was enough to say, yeah, life was pretty brutal back then. I could see how month after month of this darkness, this cold would just permeate into the body and the mind and slowly just kind of wear on you. Well, and the 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 crazy thing too is is with the winter, of course, you know, we we mentioned isolation and whatnot. And of course, over the last couple of years, isolation has played a bigger role in our lives and and whatnot. And it, What's what's been fascinating to me to watch, even over the last couple of years with the the lockdowns and the shutdowns and this kind of thing, is the the mental health toll that it's taken on people who have the amenities, you know. And we think about what that situation would have been like without any of that help, without Skype, without being able to to communicate in in that kind of a way, without being able to connect with other people, with a shortage of food, uh, you know, with all of those things like that. That to me, it's it really is another way of life that we really just don't have a clue about. And most of these people were isolated in good times. And then in winter, they would split up even farther away because that would spread out the game where you might not have enough food in a local area to support 60 people all camped together. So you'd break out usually in family unions and spread out where... Now you're even more isolated. Instead of having 30, 40, 50, 100 people with you, you have basically your family on your own. You're not going to interact with anyone else until the spring thaw comes about. So now you're piling isolation on isolation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the 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 added 
the the added issues, like you were saying, of just not not enough. You know that lack based thinking and the lack based thinking. When I when I look at Wendigo, when I look at the 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 overall various descriptions, you know the the root description I think most people have of them is this emaciated creature. You know the faces seem to vary, but this emaciated long bony creature. And to me, it's just such a direct reflection of not only that 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 hunger that we that we've talked about, but that aspect of of uh, isolation and, and famine and whatnot as well. These people had no other sounding board other than their own beliefs. And we we know isolation does some pretty weird things to people. I think you make a great point that there's something about the cold, the famine, the isolation that we equate that with the Wendigo. Nobody ever talks about here in the United States, cannibals like Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as being a Wendigo or somebody who's crazed on bath salts in Florida in the U.S., eating the faces of their fellow friends, nobody ever says that's the Wendigo because it's not based in the cold, the darkness, and the isolation. I think those are core elements of the Wendigo that can't be replicated in other places. Totally. And, you know, you when, when you guys were out there, was there ever a moment where you began to wonder if you guys weren't alone? Because I know Kevin talked about it a little bit where he was saying that he thought he heard something at one point circling the camp. Yes. So we made our base camp a little bit away from the lake because we needed a big fire to keep us warm and didn't want to burn through the ice of the lake. And one night when we had a good base campfire going, um, mainly not only for heat and warmth and light, but we had to keep our tallow hot. And I'll get to that in a, a moment. But while we had a good fire going, Kevin's decided to stay back at base camp. And my colleague Noah Voss and I decided to walk to the middle of the lake to see if we could conjure up the Wendigo. And while we were gone, as soon as we left, Kevin said he heard people talking just on the perimeter of where the light would flicker off the campfire where he could make out something, but nothing was there. But he he swore he heard someone talking to one another. And as Noah and I were walking to the lake, we were filming it. And as we were filming it, Noah paused for a moment and said, we have to be very quiet. Our boots are crunching the snow so loud, no one's going to hear what we're talking about. And as we paused there and we're filming it, obviously, something on our left startled us up near a tree. Something big uh, fluttered and flew out. Um, We didn't see it. We tried to encounter it, but we didn't see it. It probably was an owl or a big bird of prey or something, but I can tell you it got our adrenaline going the entire time because the island was dead quiet and here's something moving. And at the time we were so flustered, we didn't even think about the, uh, the owl aspect of how owls are thought to be spies for Wendigo or even the Wendigo shape-shifting into an owl and spying on its prey. But at the time we were so cold and startled, it didn't even cross our mind. And then when we got back to camp, that's when Kevin told us that he heard voices on the island as well. Oh, I've been there at hindsight 2020. <laughs> and there's some things you just wish you, 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 you kind of wish you knew at the time. And then other things you, you're very grateful that you realize later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, and that's so interesting. And you brought up 
you brought up the fact that you brought hot tallow with you. And I thought that was that was really significant. Can you talk about the relationship with hot tallow and the Wendigo? But also, what was the thought process that made you guys bring it? Because because most people would go out there and they'd be concerned about, you know, recorders and video cameras and gear. And you included that. And I thought that was really significant. I think over the years, I've really scaled back on equipment that when I first got into this, and maybe you'll uh, enlighten me that this happened when you did as well, I had a van load of equipment, all kind of gear and gadgets. And what I found myself doing is that most of the time at a legend, I was setting this gear up, monitoring it and breaking it down. Yeah, I was missing out on the legend. I wasn't experiencing it. I was just there as a, you know, best buy employee of sorts, you know, that you just, you've got all this gear and there it is. I'm out here. So we did want to document some of our stuff with recorders and we usually had them attached to us so we wouldn't have to monkey with them. So it wouldn't be a big deal. We had um, cameras, motion cameras or trail cameras set up as well. So we wouldn't have to deal with it. But we wanted to include that, but we also wanted the original literature uh, and the folklore. And one of the legends is that tallow, which is an animal fat, which would have been plentiful for anyone in the Northwoods to at least have some of it at one point or another, that you can either kill the Wendigo by pouring hot tallow down its throat and it will defrost its icy heart. Or that if somebody is turning Wendigo and you catch it in the early stages, by feeding them tallow, you can cure them of turning Wendigo. Which, obviously, if somebody's starving and they're in a famine mode and you pour basically hot grease and fat down their throat, you know it's going to probably have a rejuvenation effect on their body, just those <laughs> calories. But we had it hot the entire expedition just in case. I mean how in the heck are you supposed to pour it down his throat? We had no idea, but it was still there as a a security blanket, if you will, a nightlight. I guess it depends on how close you decided you were going to get to this thing. (laughs) That's really what it comes down to. And it really was. It was to the point where my colleague Noah and I decided we were going to spend the expedition in our tent, but Kevin wanted more of an adventure. So he was going to sleep in his hammock outside in that weather. But what's funny is I have this awesome photograph of Kevin sleeping in his hammock. It's covered in snow. And right next to his hammock is his giant axe because he had it there (laughs) just in case that that idea that maybe this can provide some semblance of uh, comfort to me, knowing that I could at least take a swing at it. Well, and the interesting thing about that as as well is that element of of empowerment, and and I see this in in the paranormal world as well, where when you empower people and get them into that right state of mind, it really does change what they're attracting into their world and what they're bringing into their experience. And so I think you know even even if nothing happened, just being in that different headspace really does impact in in my experience everything that that the the person is about to experience i agree with that completely it's like when a lot of kids may have trouble with believing they're seeing ghosts or spirits in their their room or their home oftentimes just telling them to have a camera on hand to take a photo or to try yeah. to record if anything happens 
it's kind of like that that weapon they have that safety uh, mechanism that they can uh, that they can use to you know at least give themselves a little peace. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I've done with clients over years, and it, the people listening, if you've got this issue, maybe not a Wendigo issue, but <laughs> a haunting issue or something like that. One of the things that I've always done with kids is I would give them something that I would call monster spray. And usually it would be a mix of something like lavender and water because lavender is is a really calming smell. Uh, and things like that, and and put it in a little spray bottle. And it does wonders for the kids, because all of a sudden, they're back in the driver's seat. And I think with the paranormal, especially with the Wendigo, that's the one thing that is so scary about the Wendigo, is that it takes you out of the driver's seat in every possible way. It's disrupting the trust of family members and home. Um, it destroys that. It, you know, it destroys your sense of being able to hang on to your own faculties. Um, you know, there's something about that uh, and about that complete and utter disempowerment that the Wendigo is really good at. I think that's why it boils down to that so many people who thought and believe they were turning or going Wendigo, that that's why they be, they begged to be killed. You know, rather than the fear yeah. of turning into this hideous monster and what they might do to their loved ones, that nothing was that brutal. Death wasn't even that scary to them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you look at people who, you know, are struggling with various ailments, let alone Wendigo. And, you know, I think that ends up crossing a lot of people's minds is what do what do we do when this is, you know, no longer this world is no longer within our realm of understanding. We'll stop the interview right there for this episode and get into it in our next when we chat more about some true crime cases with possible Wendigo influences. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal experience, we're going to tell you about a process called Journal of Appreciation. In this exercise, the intention is to gently shift the way you view your world and in turn, slowly begin to shift your point of attraction so you begin receiving better experiences. When most people think of journaling, they immediately begin thinking about writing down their day exactly as it was or writing about things to complain about. This person did or you'll never believe what happened to me today. But we would encourage you to start journaling by looking for five things in your day for which you can be appreciative. This might seem small, but when you've had a bad day or the news has got you down, this can be a real task. Some of these things might not be very big, but they don't have to be. Day by day, your list will get a bit longer, I promise. But it might start out as simple as, today I appreciate my breath. You can start off with, I appreciate this because, or I loved when this happened because. And in each sentence, get back into the feeling place of when it happened or when you observed it. This is crucial. Don't just do it by rote. This will gradually begin 
to train your brain to seek out more things to appreciate because you know you'll be accountable to your list at the end of the day. And in turn, you'll begin to notice more things that match the vibration of appreciation yielding themselves to you. The word appreciate means to increase in value, and that's the whole point. To look around and increase the value of your own experience so that you can begin to live what you really want. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thanks, Morgan. I've been practicing a gratitude list for years, and I love doing it. And sometimes I even share it with a friend. It definitely helps me to go to bed with a positive frame of mind. And that's it for episode two of Supernatural Circumstances. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.